right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful privilege, the honor actually of gathering together as family this morning. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for empowering this spiritual gift amongst others so that this truth is made known, that we have a place like North Christian Church to assemble together, for as your word says, shall we not forsake assembling together like so many do, but also for as long as it is called today, encourage one another through this and other practices, Father, that you've afforded each one of us by grace. Speaking of grace, Father, thank you so much for continuing to teach us on that subject that your love has been bestowed and on humanity in so many ways that it's overwhelming at times, Father. And we thank you for this series, for allowing us the time and the space and the faculties to discover why the apostles, your apostles, your son's apostles ought to be so very encouraging for us as budding evangelists. Thank you for this time to do this thing. Special prayers, of course, go out to those in the congregation that can't be here this morning that might be too ill. And then special prayers out to those in this world that are still lost, who are eternally ill. May we have the tenacity and the perseverance and the strength by your will to go and evangelize these individuals. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's magnificent work on the cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt, to make a morning like this even a reason to rejoice. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is, Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? By grace, they were prepared. And the focus, of course, is on grace. We had quite a few lessons in our last major series on grace, getting it straight, um, understanding the depths of it. And so we ought to focus again this morning on grace, that by grace these so-called uneducated, unexceptional, ordinary men were prepared for service. On Thursday, the Spirit had me ask you to read Matthew 13 while contemplating the following three slides up here on the board. Regarding unbelievers, remember Matthew 12 and 13 is that sort of transient place in Scripture where the blasphemy of the Spirit is highlighted, where that change from propositional teaching to parable teaching in our Lord's ministry occurred. And that, um, of course, would have been highlighted in your homework, which was to read Matthew 13. So regarding unbelievers, the basic reason why someone rejects the gospel 
is because its foundational premise is that they realize that a person needs a savior. That's the only reason why someone would reject the gospel. Because they don't realize or they refuse to accept that they need a savior. If a person never rightly reconciles the chasm between themselves and the sovereign God of the universe, they will miss this point altogether. So, there's a very real impetus for salvation. And as evangelists, we need to get there. That should be the thing that we're after. When we go out to evangelize somebody, we've got to get the conversation to this point somehow. Uh, we cannot sort of fly over it because it's uncomfortable. We cannot apologize for its very presence in the gospel proper, that a person needs to realize they need a Savior. We need to carry out this commission that we've been given to go out and evangelize people. But we need to do so with this very real impetus for salvation uh, at the forefront of our minds. Satan and the kingdom of darkness doesn't want unbelievers to realize this presence of this need. He does everything, everything in his power to deceive unbelievers into thinking that they have or that they're not in need of a Savior. That maybe the chasm really isn't that large. And since it's really not as large as Holy Scripture says it is, or this evangelist says it is, that might be you, um, then maybe I can bridge it on my own, because it doesn't seem that bad. You know, I don't seem that bad, and I know God's holy and righteous and everything, but that chasm just doesn't seem that big, so uh, maybe I'll try to leap over it myself. Maybe I'll try to establish some modicum of self-righteousness, if you would, so that I don't need the gospel. I don't need Jesus to pay for my sins. I don't need that guy, that person. And Satan loves that. So evil has a champion. Satan's ploy is to get people believing they are righteous without God's help, or at least enough, quote-unquote, to gain entrance into heaven. And even the end goal is perverted. In other words, the gospel is only about getting into heaven. That's, as we've learned, not the goal. The goal is to be delivered from the throes of your own sin that you were born in, from spiritual death, as we like to say, as the Bible calls it out. But his ploy is to get people to believe that they are righteous, at least enough to gain entrance into heaven sort of like the rich young ruler. What must I do? That was all about him, wasn't it? What must I do in my own self-righteousness? You see how far I've come. I'm rich, I'm famous, I'm popular, I'm whatever. You fill in the blanks to, with people that you run across, especially in the United States. I'm all these things. I only need a little bit more to be really, you know, to close the gap. So people, Satan lies and gets people thinking that they can be good enough to get into heaven, to to achieve this so-called end goal, which is just to get that ticket. Find the golden ticket, like, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
the golden, I got the golden ticket. But you really didn't because you never actually contemplated giving up the self-life, knowing that you needed to give up the self-life, like the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said to his own. You have to give up the self-life if you want to follow me. If you've never had that conversation in your own soul, or it's repulsive to you, then you might have a problem. Nonetheless, Satan propagates lies, stating that if you are self-righteous enough, you certainly don't need Christ's righteousness. The problem, again, as I just alluded to, is if you never receive Christ's righteousness, you'll never be saved. doesn't matter. You could be, you know, the, the most wonderful, quote, awesome, righteous, by the world standards person, but that falls sharply below the standard that God abides by, which is perfect righteousness. So we need imputed righteousness from Christ. If you don't get it, you're not saved. The final slide you were instructed to consider while doing your homework was this. Matthew 13, the key parables, if you would. This is when Jesus started speaking in parable form. Ask yourself, after reading through Matthew 13 all at once, without stopping, pondering doctrines, without getting stuck or tripped up by this or that thought, what the nature of Jesus' parables were. Think big picture and think simple. Hint, consider membership, not membership types. Consider membership, not membership types. And all I mean there is, you know, his, his audience at the time, their big concern was the kingdom of heaven, getting in. That was their big concern. How do I get in? How do I become a member, if you would, of the kingdom of heaven? So think that way. And think of how simple the parables were laid out against that desire of those that he was teaching, frankly, the gospel proper to. This homework was assigned to you to realize fully what Scripture has to say about true discipleship in Christ Jesus. The gospel hope. The gospel is everything to a believer. Any hope of deliverance at or after being saved is a function of this one reality. It's everything. That's what Paul was getting at in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Toward the end of a relatively long letter to the Corinthians, Paul made his love for this gospel known. There's so much we can glean from the apostles, including the apostle Paul, regarding their love of, their abiding in the gospel. And so at the end of a very long letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul made his love for the gospel known. And if you learn to read scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ, who is the word, then what you'll continue to see more and more clearly is the point on the board, that the gospel is everything to a believer. It really is. It's everything to us. Any hope we have is based on it. Any um, joy set before us is because of it. Any rejoicing, any prayer even, any thanksgiving 
is always premised on it. I mean, it's always, you know, I'd be silly all the time. You guys laugh, but I really am grateful for stuff like this. But I'm really grateful because I'm rooted in the gospel. If that makes any sense. This means so much more, given that I'm saved, that I understand God's grace, and that even the little things are by that same grace. It's just sort of a reminder. So the gospel is everything to a believer. Now let's see if we can find this truth in Scripture. Last week we read the latter portion of 1 Corinthians 15. This week let's read the first part and see if Paul's love of and focus on the gospel is apparent. Go to 1 Corinthians 15.1. Again, let's read it and see if Paul's love of and focus on the gospel is apparent. First Corinthians 15.1. Remember, the gospel is no different to Paul. The good news about Jesus Christ, our Savior, was no different. I mean, he had the same trainer, right? The same guy that trained the, the, the uh, first 12 is the same one that trained Paul. He didn't, give him, he didn't train him up in a different gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. So we know right out of the gate, in this tremendous chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand. Yeah, because, you know, for a believer, that's everything. You stand in the gospel, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain up here on the board, this is a very real thing. As an evangelist, if you hold fast the Word. So Paul was not ever apologetic of inserting these little check marks, if you would. Even when he was writing to what would predominantly be, presumably, a believer audience. But he was never fooled, just like uh, any shepherd, myself included, is not fooled into thinking... It's likely possible, I wouldn't say likely, but it's possible right now. Someone listening to my voice, either here or on the internet, is an unbeliever. But yet they're in attendance. So he says, if you hold fast the word. Paul was concerned about the quality of what people believed in. And whether or not said belief resulted in true faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 1 John 2, 19. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8a. The gospel of salvation was the centerpiece of his ministry always. Always. Always, always, always. The gospel of salvation was the centerpiece of his ministry always. Case in point, Paul was never timid about having individuals examine their own faith to see if they were truly disciples. And throughout Scripture, you see him inserting this kind of testing into the hearts of those he was writing to. 
Let me give you 2 Corinthians 13.5 in the Amplified. Test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Why? Because something might be wrong. You shall know them by their fruit. A true believer, as we've learned, perseveres, actually has fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But we know, dogmatically, out of the mouth of Jesus himself, that if you are saved, you will bear fruit. So make sure that you pass this simple test. Are you committed to the Lord or not? Is the gospel the centerpiece of your life or not? How can you possibly be saved and totally changed and it not be the centerpiece of your life? And I'm not talking about the the believer who drifts here and there and stumbles here and there. Examine yourselves, not me. Or do you recognize this about yourselves by an ongoing experience that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test and are rejected? as counterfeit. Paul had no problem saying things like that. I have no problem saying things like that. You should have no problem saying things like that. And the first place you look is in the mirror. Is this real for me? One of the key lessons we learned over the course of our lengthy series on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification was that a true disciple of Jesus Christ perseveres. How could they not? God's changed them. A true disciple of Jesus Christ perseveres, and they persevere for one reason only, because God has literally changed them, made them new creatures in Christ, and then given him or given them His own Holy Spirit to empower them. And you know what? God never fails. God never fails. If He did, think of it this way, how could we ever trust Him? It's no wonder why so many self-described quote-unquote, Christians are living insecure lives. Hold your thumb. Go to 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. You see, Paul wasn't the only apostle to speak about the presence of unbelief in the churches, even. In so-called Christendom, even. And it's no wonder why so many self-described Christians are living insecure lives. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They would have persevered. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, not every Christian is who they say they are. Not every so-called Christian, has believed the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Not every Christian has counted the cost. 
All right, go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 1. And it's funny because I, I imagine there's a lot of pastors out there that wouldn't teach this lesson because they'd be afraid. They'd say something stupid like, hey, you're sowing insecurity in your own church. No, I'm not, because those that are saved don't have a problem with this. They look in the mirror and they go, yeah, I'm convicted, I'm saved. The only people who are insecure when I speak like this are the ones who aren't, who don't have that sense of security. And that's a very good thing that happens. That's the impetus. That's a very good place to be as an evangelist. 1 Corinthians 15.1, you're doing them, you may be offensive to them, but you're doing them a huge favor. Again, 15.1, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, to our previous point up here on the board, if you hold fast the word, Paul was concerned about the quality of what people believed in and whether or not said belief resulted in true faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The gospel of salvation was the centerpiece of his ministry always. Always. And if you learn to read the Bible like I've been teaching you to, like I've been encouraging you to, even in this latest little homework assignment with Matthew 13, you're going to see this more and more. It's going to become very apparent to you that the gospel is literally the centerpiece of the entire Bible. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, up here on the board. First importance in the Greek is protos, implies a superlative, means foremost in time, place, order of importance as... um, a lexicon would give you as um, so in context places the gospel as the centerpiece of Paul's ministry. That's what first importance means. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's a superlative there, you see. In context, places the gospel as the centerpiece of Paul's ministry. You can see it. He said, I came to preach the gospel. Of first importance is the gospel. Verse 4, And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That just means they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And then, in the presence of the gospel, Paul says something as an an apostle of Jesus Christ that all apostles would have understood, And furthermore, something that we all ought to embrace wholly. Look at verse 10. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and guess what? What? 
you, so you believed. All right, now, that's verse 11. Concentrate. Do not miss that final phrase. Whether, who, it doesn't matter who it was. We preached what? The gospel. What did he say in verse 1? I came to preach the what? The gospel. We preached so that what? You believed. Hmm. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So do not miss that final phrase. And it's something that without the proper perspective and emphasis on the gospel proper, we might lose sight of. Which is the nature of Christ's own ministry working through one of his apostles. Again, now concentrate, if necessary, this is very important. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So ask yourselves right now, what do you, quote, see when you read and so you believed? In context, what do you see there? What should you see there? Don't just read over that like most of us do. And so you believed. In other words, all this effort of mine, even the writing of these letters, all my preaching, my writing, my reminding, my love, my all of it, my sending of other disciples to your need, your spiritual need. What was it for? So you believed. So I'll give you a little help. And hopefully once you see it, this entire chapter, this entire book is going to pop right off the page at you. Up here on the board. And you believed, so you believed. This is the very reason, the intended result of Paul's preaching. This wasn't some diatribe against Corinthian immaturity. It was a clear indication of the goal of Paul's ministry, which would have been, guess what? The same as Jesus's, to seek and save. Allah Luke 19.10 And so you believe really reveals the intended result of Paul's ministry. He wasn't even talking about, you know, Corinthian immaturity. Here. Let me give you an analogy to drive this subtle point home. We can sit back for a moment. When you purchase a new computer, and some of you really need to. <laughs> I'm serious. When you go to help somebody out and there's like, you know, like dust bunnies the size of, you know, New Jersey in the, in the fan, maybe it's time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. When you purchase a new computer... Consider the following. One, total cost of ownership. Total cost of ownership means how much does it cost and how much does it cost to maintain it, how much does it cost to keep it for, say, five years even. A lot of people don't think that way. They're like, oh, I can afford this computer, but then you've got to buy all this other software, you've got to maintain it, you've got to subscribe. To total cost of ownership. Number two, ease of purchase, both hardware and software. Does it have easy installs, etc.? Is it easy to buy the hardware itself? Number three, security, virus protection, and bugs. How's the computer do on that front? Four, ease of backing up data. Should be really easy to back up data. It should be something you don't even have to think about. 
Five, support in troubleshooting. Does it drive you crazy when something's going wrong and nobody seems to help or there's a bazillion forms of help but nobody's useful? Or troubleshooting is a real pain because nothing makes sense. There's a spaghetti strand, a mess of whatever. How about number six, ease of upgrading? Number seven, stability of the partner ecosystem? Who's developing applications for this platform? A bunch of rogue wackos? No, I'm serious. Or is there some stability to the overall ecosystem, what we'd call an ecosystem of partners? And then, of course, styling. Is it good looking? I'm just saying. You know, if you're going to spend money, you might as well get something that's appealing to the eye. So those are eight things that I was thinking about. Now, even, <laughs> even now, some of you are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> is he having a relapse or a flashback from his days in high tech? Now, there might be a hundred different answers to those questions. But, and listen closely, if I tell you why I just rattled off the virtues of making a good computer purchase, our entire conversation becomes exceptionally clear. Are you ready? I'm trying to convince you that buying a Mac instead of a Windows PC is the right thing to do. Some of you are like, <laughs> agree or disagree, you're missing the point. Now, okay, so now, if I quickly cover those things with you again, and the context of my intention is in full view now, now you know I'm a Mac salesman. Then you are no longer confused or asking questions about why I'm asking you to ponder such things like TCO, ease of purchase, security, viruses, ease of backing up data, support, troubleshooting, ease of upgrading, stability of the partner ecosystem, and styling. Now you know why. Notice that when I read the list originally, I didn't say a word about Macs or PCs. It wasn't until the end of my you know, sales pitch that you found out why. Now, to tie this back, though Paul wasn't selling the gospel, this is exactly what we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 11. Look at it again. What does it say? Whether it was they or I, so we preach for what? So you believe. In other words, I give you all these things to think about so that you believe. I gave you that little list so that at the end of it, you believe that Mac is the right way to go. And if you don't, you're just a dummy. <laughs> just saying. In other words, just all goofing aside, it's really, there was an intended result. There was an awful lot of sort of things to think about, but to Paul, he was laser-visioned. Just like all the apostles, just like anyone who stands behind a pulpit should be laser-visioned. Always about the gospel. I've become all things to all men. Why? To save them. What do you think this is all about? 
Sometimes you have to have this conversation. Sometimes you have to have that conversation. Sometimes someone's confused about this about God. Sometimes they're confused about that about God. But at the end of the day, all of it's so that people believe, that are saved. Life is a drop in the bucket. So like my semi-fictional analogy regarding Max, we learn of why Paul wrote what he did. And as a side note, one of the benefits of reading passages over and over is that each time you read it, you have a greater context. So if you read that, for instance, for the first time, it says, oh, so that you believe. Just like with my little analogy. Now you go back and you read it again. You go, oh, now I get it. It's all clear. What's he talking about? He just wants people to be saved. But if you never do that, if you never look for the intended result, if you don't see the big picture in Scripture, you're just reading a bunch of stuff and you can concoct any kind of reason why a person would be talking about this, that, or the other, including always totally talking about becoming so-called spiritually mature. And you can be off and running for years and years. You know what? I've been there. I've done it. You can run for years and years. Some people will tell you right now, stand up. I was, I was run, off and running for decades. Until I saw the big picture. And then it just went whoosh. Now when I read the Bible, it's like, this is awesome. Because I know exactly what was going on. That there was an intended result. And so you believed. This is the very reason the intended result of Paul's preaching. This wasn't some diatribe against Corinthian immaturity. It was a clear indication of the goal of Paul's ministry to seek and to save. Like every apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul's great desire was that people were actually saved. And like any shepherd worth their salt, his greatest fear was that some, of the, some in the churches weren't. That's why every so often he would check in. Unless you fail the test. Unless your faith is in vain. Unless... So he had this great fear, like anyone worth their salt has, that some in the churches weren't actually saved. John said the same thing. We just read it in 1 John. Some people leave, and they never come back. They don't persevere. Why? Because they were never saved. They were never changed. They don't have the gospel drawing them. The sheep hear my voice, and they what? They follow me. They follow me. Why? Because they've actually been changed supernaturally they've actually been changed and god doesn't fail so his greatest fear was that some of the churches weren't saved even though they were members in the worldly sense they the same way there are members of churches across the globe that aren't saved that was a fear of his he just wanted people he wanted everybody to be saved what did he say he said i just want to know christ and him crucified is that okay with you guys is that okay? You know, he'd go to the Super Bowl party today and he would irritate the heck out of everyone. He'd be like, Paul, get out of the way. He'd stand right in front of the 69,000 inch television and be like, I just want to know Christ and him crucified. Paul, get out of the way. <laughs> Don't invite him next year. Note to self. Don't invite Paul. All he wants to talk about is the gospel. Yeah, no kidding. You know how much that Super Bowl game's going to matter in eternity? 
Ask yourself, this is stupid. Stupid. You just like fist fights at grocery stores. That's my can of cream cheese spray. You can't have it. Incredible. People are out of control. Some of you even now might be having what we would call a, a visceral or sort of a plucking of the nerves response to this lesson as if to say, who's this guy to challenge another's salvation? I'm nobody. And neither was Paul by his own admission. But Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's the one who said unequivocally, go to Matthew 16, 24. Matthew 16, 24. I don't care what you think about this person. It really doesn't matter. And I don't think, I know, Paul didn't care about what you thought about his person. He didn't come with superiority of speech or trying to impress you with his wisdom and his worldly words and this kind of a thing. He only wanted to know Christ and him crucified. Jesus said this, if you have a problem with Paul or any shepherd for that matter, look at Matthew 16, 24. You don't have a problem with the under-shepherd, you have a problem with the great shepherd. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But I won the Super Bowl! Who cares? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I suppose if, if you've got the audacity to ask the question, who's this guy to challenge another's salvation, then I guess you ought to step up to the plate and ask Jesus the same question. Here on the board. Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation. He just did it. A lot of theologians put Jesus' ministry down as a judgment ministry. Repent or else. Believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. I'm not going to apologize for this. Go away then. You don't want me? Then go away. Is that your ministry? Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation. And he has supernaturally equipped and encouraged his own under-shepherds to do the same, without apology. Without apology. And as we've learned, his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will convict us each of such things. It's not my job. My job is to teach. My job is to bring it up as necessary when instructed to do so. I don't mind saying some of you might have a problem. It's, not, it's between you and the Lord. I'm hoping everybody in here doesn't have that problem, but it's possible that somebody or more than one person has the problem. But here's what we've learned. I mean, the Holy Spirit will convict that person. Not me. He might work through me, and there might be a certain kind of conviction coming from the pulpit, but ultimately it's God the Holy Spirit who's enacting, empowering such things. 
So as we learned, it's the Spirit's special ministry to unbelievers and believers to convict them of their salvation. It is the Spirit who's lets, or it's the Spirit who lets a person know if they are saved or not. Not me, not any person. That's why I get kind of feisty when I hear someone say, oh yeah, I told them they were saved. They're good. I told them they were good. I, I told them that I believe that they were saved. I'm like, what gives you that right? Honest to goodness. What gives anyone that right to tell another human being that they are saved? You didn't save them. So how would you know? You don't have that right, so stop it. Oh, but didn't you believe when you were like five years old? Wasn't that you? Yeah, that was me. Oh, you're totally good. Let's watch the Super Bowl now. Paul, get out of the way. I'm serious. I'm really serious. We're laughing, but it's really sad, isn't it? That any one of us would take that upon ourselves to proclaim another's salvation. As Jesus said in His humanity, as we've also noted recently in Matthew uh, 12, up here on the board, and 13, Matthew 12, 32, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So in His humanity, think about this, in His humanity, Jesus said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, you don't have to even take my personal ministry at face value. You can sin against me, but you must receive the Spirit's ministry as truth, lest you perish in your sins. This takes us back to go to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. That's an important thing to think about. Even Jesus in His humanity said, you don't even have to take me at face value. That sin will be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But you will not and you cannot blaspheme God the Holy Spirit in His special ministry regarding your salvation. So think about it this way. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. I told you this on Thursday. I mean, the greatest uh, compilation, if you would, of prophetic utterances is this right here, what you're looking at. Do not despise anything in the Bible. You can't take some of it and leave some of it, you know, out in the wind. You have to accept this as truth. Do not despise prophetic utterances, a.k.a. the Word of God. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to, what, to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Here's the Amplified of the last two verses up here on the board. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, 22. But test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good. Sometimes you're going to have to read passages more than once. Just look at what I showed you as an example, even with an analogy to drive the point home regarding 1 Corinthians uh, 15. You didn't really see that clear, stated, intended result until verse 11. So unless you go back and read it again, you, never read it, you don't read it necessarily with a full lens, a totally clear lens. So you have to go back, examine things, go back. 
test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good. In other words, you might be off. To that, hold fast, abstain from evil, shrink from it, and keep aloof from it in whatever form or whatever kind it may be. Again, verse 21, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil up here on the board, examine everything carefully, never take anyone's word at face value. I say this as a man speaking to you. <laughs> Seriously, you should have a healthy respect for this office, for this pulpit, for this man even, for the spiritual gift. But I don't want you just to take my words as gold. I don't want you to, because as I've taught you, this was years ago, shared wisdom, borrowed wisdom never holds up under pressure. It never holds up under pressure. So you might agree with me and be inspired even to go examine scripture on your own so that you might have the same convictions that come from the pulpit. Great. Look at the man's faith. Imitate it. That's what that's all about. Submit to authority in, 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 while you're doing so. That's what that's all about. It's great. But there's, I'm never going to supplant your wisdom. I, I'm not your wisdom. You need to examine everything carefully. And you might say, oh, God, but the Super Bowl's on. And you know the pregame. The, I know the Super Bowl's at 630, but the pregame's at like 3. I know that seems like a lot of time, but it flies by. Three and a half hours, you know. I, I can't read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11 again. I might miss the new uh, Bud Light commercial in the 30 seconds that it took me to read it. Where the heck are people's priorities? But honest to goodness, today's a wonderful day. Super Bowl Sunday is a wonderful day for all of you to step back and go, seriously, where are my priorities? Am I sitting here right now going, this bald guy's taking way too long? I could be drinking already. <laughs> you see uh, Melissa and Brian over there like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa's like, I didn't do that. No, I'm serious. Where, where does that even say about your, if that's you even in a little bit, what does that say about your priorities? It's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. Examine everything carefully. So, yeah, it does take some work. It does take a little effort. Never take anyone's word at face value. Examine the things you hear from fellow man carefully, lest you be lazy, and accept false doctrines as truth. A man who stands for nothing falls for anything. As Jesus said, John 8, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The Berean example, they, they examined everything carefully. Go to Acts 17, 10. It's not like we don't have examples in Scripture that did do this thing, that did choose to take the time with great eagerness to examine the things even that they were being taught from the Apostle. Paul, think about that. This is the Apostle. Still, Acts 17.10 the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily 
to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. You see what happened? You see a cause and effect? They examined what? The scriptures daily. And then what happened? Many of them believed. Can you imagine that, how that works? Does that just seem so simple? Yeah. I can't get some of you to do homework. Let's face it. You don't have to raise your hand. I wouldn't ask you to do that. But you know right now, if, if God forced you to raise your hand, if I said, raise your hand if you didn't do your homework, and he forced you, you'd be like, oh, my, oh, what? <laughs> yep, it was me. Right? Then you have to say to yourself, seriously, Matthew 13, seriously, if you were a really quick reader, you could literally read it in less than a minute, maybe two. Not that that would be adequate in terms of attention, but you know my point. But yet that same person is going to sit in front of a television for hours and hours this afternoon and tonight to watch a football game. Think about that. What the? Go Patriots. Spent more time working for that football jersey than they would working for truth, looking, examining daily. Anyways, cause and effect. Many of them believed. I mean, isn't that what we just heard? So that you believe. Isn't that how we started off? I mean, preaching the gospel, why do you do it? So everybody just makes fun of you? No, so that people can believe. You guys are laughing. I'm coming to every one of your houses today. I'm going to be just like Paul. All I want to know is Christ and crucified. I'm going to wear some obnoxious outfit. To be like, oh, oh. <laughs> and you would seriously be very angry with me, wouldn't you? I'm serious. Why? Because I'd probably embarrass you in front of your company. You know, your worldly company. People who don't care a, a, a lick about Jesus Christ. A lick about Jesus Christ and you're fellowshipping with them. And you're not evangelizing. Oh, I'm trying to work. You know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to evangelize them. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're like, throw me a beer, dude! I'm coming. I'm serious. I have all your addresses. Remember that. I know it's privileged information, but this is for God. <laughs> Therefore, many of them believed. Amen. Along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Awesome. That's what this is all about. So there's another critical lesson for all of us as evangelists. It is the word that convicts people, not our words. It's the word, not our words. We might entice a person. We might be used by God the Holy Spirit with the Word, representing the Word in some way, shape, or form. He might use us to help that conviction. But ultimately, it's the Word of God. And you of all people should know, if you're a believer, especially in this church, you should know that the Word, reading your Bibles, is not an option. It's really not an option. I'm not presenting it as an option. With all my authority whatsoever, as a shepherd, as your shepherd, I'm saying it's not an option. You know, it's like when, you know, you're not my children, but if you were, I'd say, yeah, it's not an option. Take the trash out. Do your chores. Do your homework for school. It's not an option. 
It's like that. It's literally not an option. You need to stop thinking about it as an option because it's really not an option. So, anyways, what you just saw was the shepherd's heart, frankly. A true shepherd is not interested in a sheep doing anything except following his God-given ability to lead them to truth. The act of believing Holy Scripture is an issue between a sheep and the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 10-12. Again, look at verse 11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed. Love it along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Once again, we are reminded of the ultimate intent of all Holy Scripture, that people are saved. I mean, that's the intent of Holy Scripture, that people are saved. All right, before we run out of time this morning, let's get back to our primary course of study more so, namely, by grace they were prepared. All of this, obviously, is appropriate but we're going to get back to by grace they were prepared. We rejoin our curriculum on the coattails again of Jesus chose them, noting that his choices were after a certain amount of deliberation through prayer. Last Sunday we had an awful lot said from the pulpit on prayer. And since Jesus is our prototype, then may we consider this. Again, that Jesus chose his apostles. As a function of his praying, Jesus never made a mistake in choosing the apostles. Even Judas Iscariot was a choice he made at the behest of his Father in heaven. And of course, Jesus chose you. So, our introduction to this next part in our overall study of the apostles' encouragement is, by grace they were prepared. By grace they were prepared. In other words, we just saw, what was, what's the end goal? We just saw, like, Paul doing it. The end goal is to prepare all of you for the Great Commission. So that what? Others might believe. That's why. But you don't have the privilege of doing that. I can hear you guys talking, by the way. You don't have the privilege of doing that until you're what? Trained up. So by grace, guess what happens? Our example is with the apostles, but by grace, you're going to get trained up. You're going to be equipped for the work of service, as in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, etc. By who? By folks like myself. By the Word of God. By God the Holy Spirit, who teaches us, who brings into remembrance all that we've been taught. By reading your Bibles, by living life, by all the things we've been learning. It's all part of the grace that God has bestowed in each one of our lives so that we can take this beautiful centerpiece and show it off and bring people to our own tables and say, look at it. This is the most important thing in life. Come dine with me. I don't care if you're a prostitute. I don't care if you're a sinner. I don't care if you're a tax collector. Jesus did it. Come dine with me. Look at the centerpiece. You see, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. This is what it's all about. This is the centerpiece of my life. You ask me how I have the strength I have. You ask me how I have the conviction I have. You're looking at it. You're looking at it. By grace, they were prepared. Not only did their natural abilities have nothing to do with Jesus choosing them, 
but they had nothing to do with their preparation for ministry. In fact, their natural abilities often handicapped them. Up here on the board, the apostles' human abilities often proved to be inabilities spiritually. And we can, we all can relate to that. Some of us have strengths or human weaknesses that get in the way. When we're strong, we're like, move aside, Jesus. When we're weak, we're like, I can't do it. It's like, they're both, human, they're both human attributes that sort of overwrite his will in our lives, and that's no good. So as we press on in our studies, keep the following paradigm in mind up here on the board, sending the apostles out. Jesus called them. Jesus trained them academically and OJT. Jesus sent them out. Just think about that way. He called them. He prepared them. He sent them out. You got called. You're being prepared. You're getting sent out. You see it? That's the, that's the thing. It's that simple. That's how it works. It's not enough just to say, I got called. I'm going to heaven. Something might be missing. I have no, I have no desire whatsoever to be trained up. I have no desire to, to, to read my Bible. I have no desire to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, and strength. I have no desire for anything, but I'm going to heaven. You might have a problem. Maybe you weren't called. Maybe you, just, maybe you were just... You wanted the, 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 the ticket. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody in your life is a farce. Maybe someone is uh, thinking because they love you, they don't want to offend you. And they've told you like an idiot, oh, you're totally saved. Pass me a brew. That person is an enemy of yours, not a friend. A friend would never tell another person, oh, absolutely, you're totally saved. That's not a friend, that's an enemy. And it's an enemy of God as well frankly, because nobody has that right to say that thing. So Jesus called them, Jesus trained them, Jesus sent them out. Again, for our next topic up here on the board, by grace they were prepared. We need to understand when, how the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission they were eventually given. It wasn't enough that Jesus simply called 12, quote, unexceptional men, he made a point of training them up before sending them out. There's absolutely no reason for any of us to think that he doesn't prepare us in a similar way. We might not have his personal attention, obviously, in the physical sense, but we certainly have the indwelling. We certainly have his spirit, remember, it's the spirit of Christ convicting us. The only difference is that he has chosen and anointed under-shepherds to take this mantle as well. Go to Ephesians 4.11. I've already alluded to this a couple of times. He's not here as our great shepherd, so to speak. So what has he done? He's given us under-shepherds. He's given you an under-shepherd even to take the mantle. I didn't say that. That's what Ephesians 4.11 and on goes and says. Ephesians 4.11, they gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So you might say that our ultimate objective, as yeah, even just think of the church even, this church even, our ultimate objective is to be part of the body, a unit that goes out and fulfills the Great Commission. And we come together with a multitude of spiritual gifts for the sake of encouraging, but also to make this little mechanism work. To make this activity that we just read of in Ephesians 4 work so that you can learn. This isn't the only way to do it. He could say, church is gone, go out in the street. Go back to a cave like they used to back in the day. Church is... This building's a building. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a blessing, but it's just a building. But he does bring together a multitude of gifts. And who bestows those gifts? God the Holy Spirit, who's the Spirit of Christ. Which means he's going to do that in the same spirit that Jesus, who said, I came to seek and to save the lost, it's going to be in accordance with that same end goal so that you might believe. So this big picture is all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel, my friends. And you didn't make it um, too difficult to understand. As I've taught you, and I'm convinced, the more I learn from the Bible, the more I live life, frankly, um, most of the difficulty is what we bring into the table. It's like this, this pure thing. It's like this pure, simple thing. It's, it's incredible, right? And this is what we're going to worship in heaven forever and ever. Um, it's this pure person, right? The Lamb of God, the unblemished one, the spotless and blameless Lamb. He is the centerpiece. His gospel is the centerpiece. He is our Lord and Savior. And then in comes Satan and starts slapping like, you know, kick me signs on the back, um, slapping. That was supposed to be kind of funny. Obviously, it wasn't slapping this thing, adding doctrines. <gasps> adding doctrines. Oh, but you can be saved this way, this higher knowledge thing. Or you can be this in Christ. Or you can be that in Christ. Or, or now you can separate yourself from the rest of the pack in Christ. Let's start comparing spiritual gifts now. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12? Stop it. Stop it. Stop doing that thing. But that's what people do, you see? It's the doctrine of this, and it's the doctrine of that, and it's this doctrine, that. Next thing you know, you got like this giant roll of duct tape, and you can't even see Jesus anymore. And that thing's just rolling around the community, bowling people over and smashing them. Oh, but Jesus loves you. Really? It don't feel like it. It don't seem like he loves me at all. You seem like a legalistic jackass. Hmm. So a lot of this grace involved in preparation, I'm convinced of it, I know many of you are, 
is scraping away the garbage that you've attached to the most beautiful thing you've ever known. It's starting to throw out, I think it was Bill Johnson about two years ago, said, you know, I've thrown out 90-something percent of my so-called doctrines and I've never been happier in my entire life. I've never been more free in my entire life. Praise be to God. You said something like that, right, Bill? Just agree. He's like, yeah, I think so. He really did, honestly. His memory's he's failing. You know. He's like, I think, yeah, it sounds awesome. I totally said that. He's like, signing photos in the back. <laughs> right? Seriously. I'm convinced of that. Because Satan's really smart. He gets little kids in school. And he says, slap this on to this concept that you have of God. Slap this on. Slap this thing on. Slap. By the time they show up to the gospel truth, they're a, a mess. And then some people are raised up in false religions even. And they're really hard to evangelize as humans. You know, They're really hard. Why? Because they've got so much baggage. They're so self-righteous. Wasn't that what the Pharisees proved? You know, I've taught you this in the past, that one of the great abominations in the Old Testament is that the, the, these individuals, these scribes, these Pharisees, the so-called educated group, they added to the Bible. Against Deuteronomy 4.2, do not add or subtract. They added all kinds of oppression to the Bible. Even the Sabbath wasn't the Sabbath anymore. There was just so many regulations and rules and all this thing, and that's not Jesus at all. There are commands, but they're not supposed to be stealing your freedom. They're supposed to be making the way for it, and the truth will make you free. I am the way and the truth and the life. And this is part of grace. I think a lot of people think grace, what do they think? Grace means I get something. Grace means I go to church, I get something. Got a new doctrine today, yay! Like a new lunchbox, right, Spider-Man? Look at, oh, Joey, don't worry about it. I got this thing, I know it's not impressive, but whatever. I got this thing, and I got this thing, and every time you go to church, you get this new stuff. People think of grace as always this sort of additive, I'm going to go to church and get more stuff. In all reality, God's going ho-hum, you showed up smelling like a sewer pipe. Let's scrub you a little bit. Let's take this, this Brillo pad and scrub you. No, I just want to get more stuff. I don't want to give up the self-life, you see. Oh, that sounds contradictory to Jesus' own words that we read earlier, doesn't it? Yep. See, grace to most people is perverted. And Satan will concede this form of perverted grace. You know why? Because it never, it never approaches the old self. That's a perverted gospel that's, trust me, high and mighty in this country. Do a little rock band, give them a weak, watered-down gospel. No scrubbing, no scrubbing. Don't want to offend anybody. Don't want to offend anybody. No scrubbing. Let's not talk about how offensive you smell to the Lord 
Let's not talk about that. Let's just say, okay, you come today and you get a nice new song and then you get, yeah, I'm talking like babies because that's what, that's what it is. It's milk. You get a nice new this and then you get a nice little pat on the back and oh, it's just wonderful. Isn't it just so wonderful? Go tell your friends about this wonderful ministry and Jesus is like, that's not my ministry at all. Doesn't sound like the way I spoke at all. Sounds like you're apologizing for the truth. Sounds like you're making the, the, the narrow road really wide. Sounds like you're trying to shoehorn the gate and get as many people in there. Uh, and then tell them, and then you tell them they're saved. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is the grace. This is what we see. So a lot of you need to change that paradigm around and say, what does it mean by grace? I'm going to be prepared. I'm telling you. That's what it means. Much, 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 much of the work is a subtractive effort. But most people don't want to give up the self-life. That is the problem. Give me more doctrines. Give me more stuff. Give me more language. Give me more multisyllabic words. Give me more this. Give me more that. Give me more this. Give me that so that I can prove to the rest of the people that I run with that I am actually growing spiritually. No, you're not. Your spiritual language, your spiritual vocabulary has, grow, has grown over the years. Big deal. If I could resurrect a Pharisee right now, they'd bury you with language. Satan would annihilate you. And these were, these were unbelievers. These are unholy beings. We need to understand when and how the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission they were eventually given. It hasn't or wasn't enough that Jesus simply called 12 unexceptional men. He made a point of training them up before sending them out. What we'll see in Scripture, and I've got to pick a spot here, what we'll see in Scripture is not a lot unlike we see even in the world. Now the remainder of this passage is also a very interesting, it's very interesting because it speaks so much of what we learned over this past year. Look at verse 17. So we have this sort of transition point where Paul says this. Let me just read it with you. Ephesians 4, 17. So he says, we're going to train you up, okay? And then this, so this I say, remember the Ephesians were considered, if you wanted to say, if you wanted to use the language mature church, they would be on the list. I'm not going to say it, but you know what I'm saying. They were a more mature church. How about that? So he was affirming certain things. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you, the Ephesian believers, what? Not maybe, do. You see it? Walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened, in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, Ephesian believers in mind, did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, see there's his little question mark again, 
just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, okay? In other words, I just vetted out all believers. That's what he said. If indeed you have heard and believe in him, etc., etc. In reference to your former manner of life, I'm only speaking to believers now, he said. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of, of deceit. Up here on the board, I'm going to give you a little Greek. I don't want you to be Greek scholars. You lay aside, aorist tense. I've given you this once, one time, if you would, once and for all. I should say one time. One time, once and for all. In other words, the aorist tense says something happened right here on a timeline, and forevermore it holds true. That's what the aorist tense means. It happened here, and it's forever true. Okay? You got hit by a car, and it's forever true that you were hit by a car on that day. Do you get it? And you are bearing scars of that accident. Does that make sense? Something like that. That's what the aorist tense means. It happened here, and it's forevermore. Okay? Once and for all. Middle voice, subject does and receives the action. That means that the person, the subject, is actually involved in the action of a verb itself. So you could say, um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know, I, I made myself look pretty by combing my hair. Well, that's not going to be me, but... You see, I was involved in the action of making myself look pretty, which, for the record, I don't do. Aorist tense, middle voice, subject does and receives the action. And then, of course, many of you know the indicative mood. It just means dogmatic fact. Whatever's going on in this verb, it's a fact. It means to lay off or aside, renounce, stow away. In context, refers to what a true believer does. I'm only talking to believers right now. You lay aside the old self. So I don't, want to be, I don't want this to be a lesson in Greek, but this is a really telling verb here, especially given the overall context of the passage. First, Paul affirms together with the Lord that these Ephesians are not like the Gentile unbelievers. And then he goes on to describe them as those who lay aside, aorist, middle, indicative, the old self. Something happened and it goes on. That's it. Something happened, and it goes on. And that's dogmatic statement of fact. So just dwell on that over the rest of the weekend. What you should realize is that Paul is saying the following up here on the board. The implications of you lay aside. Aorist tense, a believer lays aside the old self forever. Middle voice, a believer is changed and therefore forever able to do so. Indicative mood, the above are dogmatic statements of fact. Doesn't mean you're not tempted and you don't fall. That's not the point. The old self for the new, and we're going to see this in a moment. I know we're stretching a little bit, but it's worth it, trust me. Again, look at verse 422. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, Sentence continues, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Sentence continues, and put on the new self. Anyone want to take a guess what that is? Aorist, middle, infinitive. Same exact Greek. Mood, tense, voice. Same exact Greek. Aorist, middle, infinitive. And put on the new self, which, is, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Let me give you this for clarity. So you lay aside the old self, aorist, middle, infinitive, or indicative, excuse me, and then you put on the new self, 
Aorist, middle, indicative. I think I said infinitive earlier. I apologize. Aorist, middle, indicative. Okay? Put on the new self. Aorist, middle. Uh, that's supposed to be indicative, by the way. Oh, wh why are, the, are these slides not changing? No, oh, there it is. All right, there it is. That's supposed to be indicative, by the way, not infinitive. So I apologize. Put on the new self. Aorist, middle, indicative. Same as you lay aside. It means it's a fact that at the same time, you ready? At the same time when you were saved, you took off the old, you put on the new. Does that make sense? And from that point on, it holds true. And who was he speaking to? Believers. In other words, you don, put on as clothing in context implies the other side of the same coin. You see, it was all one sentence, one thought. You can read it again at home. It's one complete thought. It's all, it's the other side of the same coin. That is, you lay aside the old self that occurs at salvation and forevermore. The simple point the Spirit's trying to make here has everything to do with that aorist tense. Happened, it persists. It happened, you were saved. If you were saved, you persevere. If you weren't saved, what can happen over here then? You won't persevere. Does that make sense? Because these things happen at the same time. Gone with the old, in with the new. It's a brand new creature. Yeah, that's right. Paul's like, yes, love it. Was encouraged by the Ephesians. Loved it. Why? Because the, what was his intended result as an evangelist? What's your intended result? And we'll end here. What's your intended result? That someone saved. That someone is actually saved. The beauty of it is that if they're saved, it can never be undone. That's the beauty of a person being saved. So if that's true, if that's what Scripture says, off with the old, on with the new, and that will never change, and this is also true, that God's grace never fails, then if someone starts failing this way right here, and I'm speaking theologically, it's not for you to decide, if someone fails right here after their so-called conversion, after their so-called salvation, after that person so-called got the uh, admission of the, some elder or some friend that you are saved, and all of a sudden they're no longer bearing any fruit whatsoever, and they have no regard whatsoever for Jesus Christ, what can you say about this event right here? It wasn't real. They were never saved. That is the whole point. So the end goal, and I'll wrap this up, is the intended result of all this work, mine right now, it's in my heart, it's the centerpiece of my heart right now, is that everybody in here is saved. I, if, if that's true, I tell God honestly, even my own prayer life, man, you take me out tomorrow, my family might be a, a little depressed, but I'll be stoked. I'll be like, hey, that was awesome. That was awesome because people got saved. There's nothing better. They grew up. They were changed. By grace, they were prepared to go out. And it was like Brillo Pad. God knows if you've been here for even longer than a year. Oh, this, this pulp is special. I mean, I got all kinds of fixings up here. I got like hose and Brillo Pads and scalpels and bats. And, I mean, it's just crazy. Boxing gloves, hockey sticks. You name it. Why? Because there's just been this tremendous scraping away of all kinds of stuff that we all came to the table with. 
He said, can we get beyond all that? Can we get back to what really matters, the thing that matters to my son? His gospel. Can we get back to this thing? Can we get back to the, the reason why I left you there, which is the Great Commission? Can we get back to this thing? Can we get back to simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ? Can we do that thing? That's why he scraped it all away. So we see things that clearly, my friends. So we realize that God's grace never fails. It never fails. It's magnificent. i got to end there. I'm, I'm not through my notes, but that's fine. Uh, gentlemen, could you come up and uh, play the video, please? Scott, we're going to change spots here.
like, please open to your Bibles to Matthew 26, 36. We've seen in our recent lessons the vital nature of prayer before making decisions, even in the life of our perfect Lord. And we saw how Jesus prayed all night long before choosing the 12 apostles, persistently asking the Father whom he wanted him to choose. So the Spirit wanted us to revisit the Lord's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right after the Lord's Supper and right before his crucifixion. So as we read, pay attention to the way the Lord prayed and how often as well. Look at Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. We might take notice of two things in particular. First of all, it's not wrong to ask our Father in heaven to remove something painful, so long as we are willing to bow to his will being done in the end. Again, it's not wrong, as our Lord just prayed a perfect prayer, it's not wrong to ask our Father in heaven to remove something painful, so long as we are willing to bow to his will being done in the end. Jesus' prayers here included asking for this cup of suffering to pass from him. Also notice the Lord prayed three times during this time of immense pressure, and he prayed the same thing each time. As part of our relationship with the Father, we should have consistent and even persistent conversation with him especially when we aren't sure what's going on. Three times the Lord prayed to be spared this suffering, and three times he ended the prayer with, Your will be done. What a fabulous example to us of how to pray. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, let's remember that when the Lord broke the bread and shared the cup, he was acknowledging what he had to go through to save us namely being broken like the bread and being poured out like the wine. And the three prayers that followed the Lord's Supper gave him perspective and strength to follow through on the Father's will for his life.
Again, the three prayers that followed the Lord's Supper gave him perspective and strength to follow through on the Father's will for his life. To God be the glory forever and ever. Earlier in Matthew 26, verse 26, we see the Lord's Last Supper with the disciples. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. In memory of our Lord, let's eat the bread. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In memory of our Lord, let's drink the cup. Let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, we are so eternally grateful that you've done this thing for us, that you've allowed your son to take our place like this once for all, once and forevermore. And we thank you, Jesus, for going through with it. You didn't have to get captured. You didn't have to follow through on the Father's will, you had your free will and you still chose the Father's will over your own. We are so grateful, it's hard to describe, but we rejoice in your love and your faithfulness for us. And Father, if anyone is listening right now to my voice who has never trusted in your Son for eternal life, I want to say now this is your opportunity to do so. It's between you and the Lord. You're a sinner. You can't help it. You can't escape it. You can't pay your own price. You're guilty before a holy and righteous God. But if you humble yourself, admit your sin to God, and you turn to Christ in your heart, He promises to save you. Believing is not just believing the facts about Jesus, but it's trusting in Him to save your life. And if you do that thing in your heart to God, He will do so. Father, we thank You for this grace that is without measure. We thank You for giving us salvation as a gift those who humble themselves before you. We ask that you bless everyone here. Help us all continue firmly in your word. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.